Hey folks, quick editorial note before we go into this episode. Technology is hard and sometimes things break. Because of this, around minute 17 to minute 19, the sound is going to be a little different. We tried cleaning it up as best we could, but there's still a little noticeable fuzz. Technology is dark and full of errors, but we're pretty sure it won't happen again. With that said, let's get on with the show. Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we try our hardest to keep all the bleeding internal where the blood is supposed to be, because today we're talking about blood. But before we look into the bloody animal bladders that history has to show us, how have you been, my dear co-host? <laughs> I've been good. I think I'm developing like last month of the school year syndrome a little mm -hmm. bit because I'm tired. Like, yeah, I think I'm just really tired. We just had spring break <laughs> and I've been in school for two days <laughs> and I'm already tired. But otherwise, I'm good. We had spring break, which was fun. I'm learning Photoshop. I'm learning digital painting. That's so fun. that's really fun. And we're also learning Arabic, the two of us. Yes, we're doing Duolingo. Yeah. Yeah, you started learning it, and then I saw you, and I was like, that looks that. <laughs> fun. I want to do that and do it better. <laughs> Competitive ass. <laughs> What's that um, that Borat thing that goes... My wife? No, my, my neighbor. I get, yeah. I get new door. I have to get new door? <laughs> he has to get new door. I have I to learn... I get the electric washing machine? He has to get an electric washing machine. I have to I start... I get Duolingo courses? She cannot afford but I can't afford because it's free. <laughs> I can't afford. It's free, and I'm I'm doing it, and I I have a lot of experience, which is really exciting. Yeah, um, it's yeah. fun. It's a beautiful language. It's so beautiful. I love it. I I don't know if you notice this, or if you I don't know if you're just like supposed to say this, but I really like the fact that the letters look very feminine. Have you noticed how what an interesting curvaceous? Yeah, curve, curvaceous. <laughs> They're so curvy and like flowy and it's just very beautiful a curvaceous letter a curvaceous language big beautiful letters yeah bbls oh my god that's fun i really like it um how have you been i have been good i have been you know making my videos as always uh did a little easter celebration which is fun because easter has happened uh not a lot but you know it's what it is my birthday is like coming up in a few days Mm -hmm. so, We're recording this on 420, so, on 420. Ha so happy 420 if you observe it. <laughs> yeah. Happy, you... happy bicycle day if you observe yesterday. Was bicycle day yesterday? Mm -hmm, 419. Oh yeah, of course. It's a fun week. It's, it is a fun week. <laughs> fun psychedelic stuff. Mm -hmm. um, have we done an episode on marijuana? No, no. I we have on LSD. We have on LSD, yeah. Uh, no, I think weed is on our to-do list oh. for... Uh, narcotics and medicine yeah that's a fun one anyway uh, i have not been doing i have not been observing 420 but i have been uh you know looking into adhd medications and stuff like that for my own scattered brain self even mm -hmm. though that's gonna take freaking forever so that's been an ongoing process mm -hmm. and i've also been like i skated once mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it was fun mm -hmm. uh, my skates are a bit broken though so i can't do much yeah you know i have to fix them using tools <laughs> I hate tools. Yeah. Why can't things just work? I I wonder the same. Um, not to make this too long, but last time we recorded, I think I was talking about how I want to start skating more. 
And so we went skating and I realized that my new skates that I just bought, that I took out for the first time, for some reason, the toe stop is wobbly. So yeah. I have to fix it. And it's the most annoying shit in the world because I just bought them. Like, aren't they supposed to work <laughs> like straight out of the box? Like, can they work? I have to I have to fix them. So anyway, that's a little bit annoying, but you know. It is what it is. It, it, it'd be like that sometimes. <laughs> it do be like that. Um, all right. So... Uh, today's episode, like you've said, is about blood. It's about blood transfusions. Love blood. Um, I love to have blood. Yeah, I know. I love having blood too. I hope I never stop having blood. <laughs> but before we get onto the episode, we have a very special patron to thank. And that patron is Old Woman Josiah. Yes. If you are a patron of ours, you do get a chance to have an in-episode shout-out. Uh, but you also get access to episodes... A bit early. And you also get access to the video version of these episodes, which um, are really fun. I try to make them fun. So, uh, you know, if you you like this show, if you like fun, um, (laughs) I hope you'll consider supporting (laughs) us on Patreon. Otherwise, thank you for listening, for sharing. All of that uh, matters a lot, too. Mm -hmm. But you know what matters even more than, uh, than fun, long episodes of our podcast? Having blood. Having... That beautiful red juice that's inside all of us. Mm-hmm. Blood. So, in this episode, we will be talking about blood and blood-related treatments. Since antiquity, and way before people actually figured out how the circulatory system worked, which, by the way, happened pretty late, people knew that blood was an essential component of life. Myths were built around the significance and properties of blood, partly because people knew that it was pretty important, also because of its hidden quality, but also because of its connection to important stages of life. There was blood during birth, blood would signal the onset of a woman's fertility, and its absence would signal the end of her reproductive years. And lastly, blood loss would often be followed by death. <laughs> yes. Not, if you see, like, if you <laughs> you see, see a, lot a lot of blood... blood um, that's not a good thing. Like, typically, you know, like, 2,000 years before Common Era, like, that wasn't, like, a really good sign. Yeah. Um, but so, people were fascinated by blood, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of beliefs and myths surrounding blood. Mm-hmm. The ancient Egyptians, for example, recognized the heart as the seat of the soul and believed that one's entry into heaven was dependent on Osiris weighing the heart on the scales of justice. Ancient Egyptians also believed that blood had miraculous rejuvenating properties and that bathing in fresh blood would restore one's youth and strength. Yes, much like billionaires today. (laughs) We've come full circle. Roman gladiators similarly believed that by drinking the blood of their fallen enemies, they would acquire additional strength and valor. Yes. Um, this is a. This is actually came up because later in the episode we talk about blood transfusions, mm-hmm. and in the very top of a paper that I found about the history it. of blood transfusions, they were like, the early, you could argue that the first blood transfusion happened between Roman gladiators who <laughs> would drink each other's blood. Yeah. Like, no, not yeah, really. Yeah, it depends on your definition of yeah. blood transfusion, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. your blood does become mine, yeah. but it doesn't exactly go into my veins, does it? Yeah, it doesn't help me. <laughs> but it, it, yeah, that's that that's. A very common tradition among gladiators. I also love how I'm giving you, or like I'm talking about all these examples, and you're like, yep, confirmed. Historian Sorry, confirmed. I didn't mean to do that. No, 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 it's fine. I'm, you know, I'm enjoying the confirmation from a real life historian, but I just think it's funny. So, Roman gladiators drank the blood of their fallen enemies, 
Um, in the new world, the highest value offering one could make to the Incan gods was the beating heart of a human sacrificial victim. In 1493, even, King Louis XI of France reportedly imbibed the meals of blood collected from healthy children uh, in an effort to cure himself of leprosy. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so healthy, healthy kid blood is... It's, that's, that's it's been stuff. popular through the ages, yeah. Um, I, uh, weirdly enough, I also have a story about, like, children's blood. So, but what I'm saying is people always knew that blood was a sort of life force, and they always... And they also tried to come up with explanations for why. Alchemists would explain the blood's powers in terms of the classical elements. They said it was made of a mixture of air, which would help with epilepsy and migraines, water, which was a tonic for cardiac and neurological disorders, and most powerful of all, fire, which could allegedly revive a person in the hour of death. Alchemists also believed that blood was an aphrodisiac and made a lot of money preparing extracts of blood, promising buyers that it, uh, quote-unquote, maketh old age lusty, <laughs> mm. and that it would help them continue in like a state a long time. Interesting. It maketh old age lusty. In any case, blood played a pretty central role in health and disease, and so it's not surprising that early medicine focused a lot on ways to restore health that were blood-focused. Probably unsurprisingly, that's how bloodletting was born. <laughs> Bloodletting is considered one of medicine's oldest practices, and it is believed to come from ancient Egypt and to have spread to ancient Greece, where physicians such as Erisistratus in the 3rd century BC would claim that illness, any illness, is caused yeah. by an overabundance of blood, or um, what they would call a plethora. Which, by the way, I had no idea that that's where the word comes from. Like, it, yeah. used, to, it used to mean an overabundance of blood, and now we just use plethora to mean... Ex no like, yeah, an excess of anything. Um, anyway, quick linguistical tangent. Linguistics. We have those a lot in this podcast, and I think yeah. that's fun. Yeah. Fun yeah. facts. Fun facts. A uh, plethora of uh, fun facts. I mean, what is a medical history podcast if not just a plethora of fun facts? Yeah. I have a lot of fun facts coming later. Mm, fun, mm. so do I. <laughs> But so so initially they thought that the blood that blood was kind of like um, the only fluid that like really mattered. So yeah. if somebody was sick, then they just had too much blood, and you know you, you could cure them by uh, emptying them of blood a little bit. Yeah. But this theory shifted with the popularization of the humoral theory proposed by Hippocrates. Um, and I know that the humoral theory is kind of, like, it's over-talked. I feel like we've mentioned it a few times, but I feel like for the purposes of this episode, I do want to go... I, I do want to talk a little bit about yeah. it, because it's it's kind of important. I mean, it is critical to the understanding of, like, blood history, so mm -hmm. I feel like that's fine. So, as we all know, proponents of humorism believe that the body is a vessel for a quartet of liquids. The black bile, the yellow bile, white phlegm, and red blood. Each representing the four classical elements earth, fire, water, and air. According to Galen, who expanded on Hippocrates' work, blood was made in the liver from food and drink carried there by the digestive tract. He also believed that blood would then be transported to all parts of the body where it would be consumed and therefore it needed to be replenished after every meal. Um, so you just became empty, I guess, after, um, like, after blood was consumed and you didn't have any blood until you ate again. Um, yeah, I, from what I read, it was like... Like, you didn't consume all of it. Like, mm -hmm. you always had, like, a little bit. But like it would, like, bit. like, it would sort of ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like, when you hadn't eaten for a while, you would be sort of, like, 
like a little a, shriveled a low, t- low tide of blood and then you, and then you sort of get I like to think more and it goes out I like to think that when you hadn't eaten for a while you would like shrivel like a raisin a little bit mm-hmm. and then as soon as you ate you'd like plump become up. like plump up like but, become turgid but I mean that's kind of what you end up being though right because like if you don't drink and eat for a little while you do kind of shrivel up a little bit so like I can see yeah, you shovel up a little, a little bit. You okay. do need to eat and drink. It's if, more about you know. hydration, I think, but yeah. Yeah, but like, they don't, they don't know that. Yeah. As you also know, it was believed that health was maintained or achieved by balancing the four humors. And for the most part, the body did it by itself. So black bile was expelled for poop, yellow bile for sweat, and phlegm for tears and nasal discharge. However, other than menstruation, the body did not have a way to naturally get rid of excess blood. Um, and once again, this is where ancient physicians said, hold on, I can do that. <laughs> they saw that bag <laughs> and snatched it. And this is where bloodletting once again became a cornerstone of medical practice. And tools were developed, starting with sharpened stones, fish teeth, lances, and flames to perform bloodletting. Avicenna of the Islamic Empire, in his canon of medicine... God damn it, he's back... <laughs> Um, He included an extensive guide on different bloodletting treatments in which blood vessels should be emptied depending on the disease. For example, one is to bleed the veins between the eyebrows in order to cure chronic headaches. While while veins under the tongue were bled in the case of angina or tonsillar abscesses. Oh my god. The sciatic vein, which is the large vein running down the hip and the leg, uh, was emptied for gout and elephantiasis. The saphenous vein, which also runs down the leg, would be emptied to alleviate menstrual problems. And here I have to say that I was really relieved to see um, that it was another leg vein that they emptied for menstrual mm-hmm. uh, issues. Because uh, if there's something that ancient physicians liked to be, is to be on the nose <laughs> about medical problems. Yeah. So, you know, I saw leg vein, I was like, good. Thank God. Thank God. Um, and do you know what else they liked to use to empty veins? Leeches. Leeches. Um, we got it, boy! <laughs> finally, we get to talk about leeches, which, uh, yeah. as you can tell, are the mascot of the show. Mm. It's been a, over a year of and podcasting, we finally and we finally mentioned leeches. bloodletting through leech. And honestly, I hadn't thought about this super much, but apparently there are hundreds of leech species, and a lot of them are not even interested in blood, no. not to mention human blood. However, the kind of leech that was most commonly used for bloodletting was the Hirudo medicinalis, which is a little segmented predatory worm. Um, sure is. And I hope you don't mind I'm taking the time to talk about these little guys, oh. but I couldn't help I couldn't help myself. Yeah, they are just do. they're just too cute and small and interesting. So I have some fun facts about leeches. They the first one is that they grow up to be 20 centimeters long, which I think is really big. Mm-hmm. Like I thought they would be like Five, like much smaller, but think, they actually grow up. I think they can be. I think they can be that small, but yeah. I think they, they but like can the full grow the full size yeah. is twenty centimeters. It's yeah. a lot. Um, That's a blood drainer right there. <laughs> they are also hermaphroditic and, and have um, clitellium. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Which leech clit? Sorry, leech clit. Um, clitellium. The they leech. have a clitellium. Le- the leech clit. Are we talking about leech clit? The Lucy. The uh. <laughs> Which is, um, okay, I'm going to explain to you what oh this is. Hold God on, hold on. I have, I have to tell you what it is. So, you know, you've seen, you've seen worms, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have seen worms. So, you know how they have, like, a little hood on, on like, their neck? It looks like a little scarf. The foreskin. 
That's the clitellium. Oh, so they are related. It, it's the, the more different things are, the more they stay the same. <laughs> um, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, this is wonderful. Is that really called the clitellium? At least the leech- leeches. Maybe I, it's called something else in worms. I really wonder if there's a linguistic connection between the word clitoris <laughs> and this. I think you should look it up. <laughs> tell, tell us later. Okay. So um, they have the clitellium, which is the thickened, glandular, and non-segmented section of the body. And here's the kicker. They stored their eggs in it. <laughs> right under the surface. That's where the legs lay. Interesting. Um, the leech is very different from other worms in that its body it's, is not just a fluid-filled sac. In leeches, the body cavity is reduced to four longitudinal channels with a solid dermis in between each cavity. Medicinal leeches have free jaws that resemble saws, but other leech species have a protrusible proboscis, like butterflies, like the trumpet. Um, but they, I love a good proboscis. I know. They keep it re- retracted into their mouths until they are ready to use it to strike their prey in a spear-like fashion. So they just kind of like roll it up. And then when, when they see like a frog or like uh, some of them hunt um, uh, snails. So they'll just like spear them. Medicinal leeches also have interior suckers, which they use to stay connected to their hosts while they do their business. Uh, once attached, they use a combination of suction and mucus to stay in place while they inject hirudin, which is an anti-clotting protein, into the host's blood. By the way, fun fact about leeches and bloodletting. Leeches are still used today, pretty successfully, I might add, in certain specific cases. They are applicable in microsurgery, where they are used to salvage skin grafts in the case of post-operative venous congestion, especially in finger reattachment and reconstruction of the ear, nose, lip, and eyelid. Mm -hmm. Their success in microsurgery is due to the anti-clotting proteins in their saliva, like hirudin, which I just mentioned, uh, but many others, as well as the vasodilators and proteinase inhibitors, which assures that the blood meal keeps coming uninterrupted, and in the case of medical interventions, increases the flow of blood to the congested area. Which is so cool. I know. I love that, like, bugs are used in medicine. They are used for microsurgery, but they're even used for the treatment of degenerative disease, such as arthritis, by increasing blood flow to tissues. Mm -hmm. There are, however, risks associated with leech therapy, as they sometimes carry specific bacteria. So prophylactic treatment of fluoroquinolones is needed. The leeches vary in price. (laughs) Oh. Um, But they will... Still today? Or is is this today or in middle age? It's today. Yeah, this is all about modern leech therapy. Mm. Because um, I was actually curious, like, how much would a leech cost? Yeah, we bought some today. Yeah, and we will demonstrate leech therapy on, on the podcast live. On the podcast. It will, we will attach it to the microphone. <laughs> um, so leeches vary in price, but they will run you about $12 per leech. That's not a lot of money. It is when you consider that they usually use, like... Like dozens. A few, hundreds, yeah. 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 Uh, um, but still, like, 12 bucks for a leech, like, I'll buy that. But you can just go out. Yeah, well. Well, I mean, if I go outside, that's Listen, a I'm, dirty street I'm leech. A do I want the clinical professional medic doctor leech. I'm a do it yourself gal. <laughs> I'll go to the local swamp and collect some leeches. You can collect some sort of frog and like, like look, a leech. I'll collect an yeah. earthworm, just like, I got it. Um, so they're about $12 per leech, but in the United States, they are typically covered by insurance companies under medication. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> 
they, how they, the hell is leech therapy covered in a lot of insurance but not like how i don't know i was surprised about that oh, i guess it, I, I i don't i don't know i guess it depends on by the um it depends on the kind of insurance you have depends yeah. on the company but supposedly how, they are typically covered so how, that's cool how do you how do you administer leech therapy can you do that your can you like go to the pharmacy and pick up a leech or do you have to like no, go I to think a hospital for and then sure it's there, like, for sure it's in a and it's in a like a, like a hospital setting yeah 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 because you can't just like release them yeah, i guess you can't just release them to the wild when you're done like they have I'm to also, be reused yeah, until they die or something yeah yeah i'm also thinking that like the the issues that they're being used for like the cases in which they're used like they don't seem like the kind of thing that you'd want to treat by yourself at home like mm. if you have you know venous congestion and your skin graft is about to like fall off because yeah, it's not getting enough blood that's um, probably a you know it's something that you thing. like yeah you go to the hospital for that like yeah. you don't really oh half my face is gonna fall off like let me put some leech on clamp on some leeches like i think a stapler. It, i think yeah and I, th- I think you also like you have to know where to place them you know so i think this is something you do in a hospital yeah. good point All right, let's talk about how the primary use of blood is today in like medical health settings. Probably something that everyone is a bit more familiar with, the practice of blood transfusions. Sometimes you need blood, you don't have blood, you need to get blood. Where do you get blood? It's an interesting history. The history of blood transfusions is a bit complicated because the history on it is it's a little vague and there are... There, there are conflicting accounts over, like, what counts as a blood transfusion and, like, what counts as, like, an effective blood transfusion. Um, what counts as blood. <laughs> what counts as blood. Um, and, like, a lot of different people here take credit for, like, very specific inventions that could be used in blood transfusion but maybe weren't. So there's, like, mm-hmm. a whole back and forth. But I've, I've simplified it down to, like, some sort of narrative. Now, blood transfusions today are pretty safe. Like, extraordinarily safe. But that is because we have a whole history of mistakes uh, and... And bad things that happened bad things that, that happened. taught us how to do it better. That taught us how to do it better. Because early blood transfusions were not safe. They were actually quite dangerous. And it's actually an interesting story about how we even got there. Now, the first recorded record of blood transfusions happening is a bit controversial. There are a couple of stated accounts and descriptions, some which are probably fake, uh, but they're interesting, so I want to share them here. The most interesting theory is that people in the Incan Empire practiced blood transfusions, and that this was a practice observed by Spanish conquerors. This is stated as basically fact on Wikipedia, and it's shared like on uh, medical history podcasts, which I've listened to like to double check some facts. Um, it's stated in sort of like popular science magazines and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the sort the the only like real source I can find are titles like Ten Unbelievable Facts About the World which aren't good sources. Oh, like a BuzzFeed article? Kind of, yeah. yeah. Like a listicle. Um, so it, this fact is repeated over and over again, but I can't prove it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I can't find a reliable source for it. So if you see it, take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But hypothetically, it could have worked because everyone of like South American indigenous populations have the same blood group. Is that true? They have, yeah. Oh, they all have. Mm-hmm. What they, like they used to now, of course, it's a bit like mixed. But before the Colombian exchange, all South American peoples had the same blood group. That's interesting. I didn't know about that. Right. I, I mean, they were an isolated population, but I would just wonder if, like, maybe different. Like, why wouldn't different blood groups like arise independently? You know. 
I don't know. I, but, I that's to, something we should look into. Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to look into it a little bit, and all I could find was just like, yeah, that happened, and now it's not. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. So theoretically, blood could have been transferred between individuals at this time, no problem. But it is not known, for my own research at least, if this actually happened or if it's a fiction based on a real idea that it could happen. It also becomes a bit complicated because early blood transfusion is a kind of a modern term for a procedure that people in the past could have called all sorts of things, especially since it wasn't fully known for much of history just how the body handled blood internally. Uh, in one case, Pope Innocent VIII, which is, um, uh, is a very funny name because he wasn't very innocent, <laughs> <laughs> he, according to legend, drank the blood of three 10-year-old boys in a desperate attempt by his doctors to cheat to death after he suffered a stroke. Uh, blood had, of course, been associated with life, so more blood in the body equals good. Can't argue that logic. Uh, however, this story is probably false, because this pope was a very bad pope, people didn't like him very much, and his doctor was Jewish. And there may have been some people in the church who wanted to muddy the name of the doctor by implying that he took the blood of Christian children and fed it to the pope, uh, which is a type of anti-Semitic blood libel, very, mm -hmm. very common mm -hmm. sort of anti-Semitic myth. Um, do you know anything about this pope? Like, what did he do? I'm just curious, like, uh, why was he so, ba so bad? Not, not exactly. I don't think he did, like, a, a lot of, like, significant events, but, like, as with a lot of popes... He was uh, just low-key shitty. <laughs> he was just low-key shitty, yeah, like, he partied. <laughs> okay, a, fair. A, a common pastime of, like, popes in the, in the Renaissance and Middle Ages was to, like, invite sex workers, like hundreds of sex workers, and throw chestnuts on the floor and have them like chase them, chase for them around, like scurry for them naked. Scurry! Mm -hmm. Common, common pastime. The first real blood transfusion that we know for sure happened in a way that we would understand it was in 1665 after a British physician called Richard Howell was one of the first people to discover that blood is different depending on if it's arterial blood or venous blood. He had previously worked with a man called Christopher Wren, who is like a renowned scientist in his own right, uh, and he's mostly remembered for like mathematics and astronomy and stuff like that, but he had himself done experiments with animals and figured out a reliable way to inject fluids into the bloodstream. Um, critically, the bloodstream of a living animal. <laughs> previously, Was he had... successful? Yeah, he was. Like they, they had figured out a sort of almost rudimentary like syringe system to sort of like okay we're gonna like find a blood vein inject interesting and when you once you can inject one liquid and you're basically halfway to a blood transfusion because then you just inject blood the thing that allowed Howell to eventually go into blood transfusions was that he had observed how blood changes when exposed to air and had developed methods for how to avoid that from happening blood becomes kind of useless when exposed to air because it begins to clot uh, which means blood isn't like, it's not going to flow, it's not going to circulate anymore. And thanks to work by Wren, he managed to develop a tool made out of an animal bladder and two quills. And the quills acted as a sort of primitive tube, and the bladder as a type of pump to sort of like extract the blood, and also to hold the blood, and then, you know, like, take the blood, disconnect, yeah, yeah. add to patient, reconnect. And Howell's big thing was that because he discovered the circulation of blood like this and used that to figure out how to transfuse blood, it also opened up the possibility of transfusing or injecting all sorts of things. So it turns out that blood was the very first thing we tried to inject into a bloodstream. So this also birthed an entire field of like injectable medicine, something that like 
you know, that can be kind of hard to do before. Like, typically, in medical history, like, you ate something or you pasted something on yourself. Like, how are you going to inject something in the bloodstream unless you, like, know how blood works? So this also led to physicians injecting opium mixed with milk, as well as a substance called antimony, which was a common medicine at the time. Um, the effects of antimony, by the way, are similar to that of arsenic poisoning. So, so don't do that. <laughs> so what is antimony? Antimony is a type of uh, mineral that's like soft to the touch, almost like clay. Uh, and it's supposed to sort of like alleviate a lot of symptoms. And uh, what people used to do before injecting it, they would like, they would, they would eat it. And because it's actually a type of mineral, the body doesn't digest it. Mm. So you, sh you, you poop it out and it stays together. <laughs> so and what would happen here is that like it, it would pass through generations. Like you, like you would take antimony like every now and then. You would dig around your own feces for it and like wash it up and then eat it again. Oh my god! And then your son would do that, and then their son would do that. Was it like, very expensive? Like, did did people yeah. have to like wash it? Yeah, I mean, wow. you know, you can't just buy antimony like anywhere. Like that, that's a good investment. Hmm. And if you have it, it's like having a multivitamin that gives you arsenic poisoning that you don't digest. That you don't digest. Yeah. Okay. That, that poisons you slowly. Don't take antimony, folks. But it was a very popular medicine. Uh, and now we can inject it into the bloodstream. Great. Now, it should be stated that Howell's discovery of circulatory blood was accepted for a long time in medical history writing. And his work did like directly lead to like a sequence of discoveries leading eventually to modern blood transfusions. But he wasn't actually the first person to discover that blood circulates through the body rather than ebb and flows. And we know this because in 1924, an Egyptian doctor discovered a document called Sharj Tarish Al-Kunun Li Ibn Sina. And this document shows that long before Howell came around and figured out how circulation works, a man called Ibn Al-Nafis accurately described pulmonary circulation and how that works. He also theorized the existence of the capillary system and accurately described coronary circulation, as in like how, how the heart gets its own blood. And while this was discovered in 1924, this is still being described today as a sort of new discovery in, in medical history, which it isn't. His discoveries were known, but they were just forgotten about, because this document wasn't found in some tomb in Egypt, but rather in a medical archive in Germany. <laughs> so people knew about this, they just forgot and he never got credit for it. And I feel that that's important to mention, because otherwise Howell gets like, more like all credit of the than credit. he deserves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it should be said that Howell, 400 years later, uh, did rediscover this circulatory Well, system. I mean, how, from what I understand, he discovered it independently. Like, he wasn't the yeah. first to discover it, but it's not like he found the document and then took credit for it. And I think it's important yeah. to, to separate between the two. Yeah, of course. Like, in that, that's, 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 that's more what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Now, Howell demonstrated blood transfusions and how to do this by transfusing blood between two dogs in 1655 by draining one of a significant amount of blood and then injecting fresh blood from a fairly large mastiff until it got plump, after which it recovered with no problem. <laughs> uh, he did this in like an audience, like a, sur uh, like a surgical audience room, uh, and the two dogs were like bound, all their feet and like head were bound so they couldn't move. Mm -hmm. And he yeah. just like slit the, like the, the pulmonary artery, like drained, drained the blood mm -hmm. until it looked sick. A mess. I think I also remember reading that the the first dog that lost blood, I think they describe him as looking limp. Yeah. <laughs> and like 
you know, unhappy. Pale. Pale. Yeah, like, can you imagine a dog looking pale? Uh, Well, after this first experiment, many dogs were pale and limp. Oh, no! The Royal Academy of Science began doing multiple studies (laughs) and experiments of transfusions of blood between dogs. No. So this happened hundreds of times. And poor, poor dogs. However, the first human blood transfusion happened when a French doctor, Dr. Jean-Baptiste Denis, read about these studies in Journal des Savants, who shortly after came across a 15-year-old patient who had suffered from fevers for many months, and who had been bled frequently by previous doctors to reduce the body's heat. Mm. Yeah, blood, Common... is, blood, blood is hot, so, you know, if somebody has fever, take the blood away. Too much blood. Cools down. <laughs> and this wasn't, like, full-on humor theory, but, like, bloodletting is still very popular yeah, in, yeah. in these times. Now, the fever of this patient had been fixed, but all the bleedings had left him quite ill. So in came Dr. Denis, and he's like, okay, this kid's basically like a big dog, right? <laughs> I've read about some cool stuff lately, so let's try it. What are, what are humans, if not, like, oversized dogs? If not just big dogs. And what I really like, too, is, like, this isn't, like, a laboratory setting or, like, an experiment. Mm-hmm. This is just Dr. Denis being like, well, I read about it. Yeah. Let's fucking try it. Yeah, yeah. So he injected around nine ounces of sheep's blood into the arm of this kid, who almost miraculously feels warm again, uh, regains a lot of the energy he hadn't had in a long time, and he does recover from his disease fully. Big win for transfusions. Um, this is not where I thought the story was going to go. It's a surprisingly positive story I feel to like, start out. Like, I, you know, I would need to read about this. I actually don't I, don't... I don't know what the fuck happened here, but I feel like the kid recovered mm. despite the sheep's blood and not mm. thanks to it. So here's, here's the thing about that. Mm-hmm. So, he dis- so the patient described a warm feeling traveling through the arm, right? Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Like you're getting fresh, fresh warm blood, like a warm feeling. That's not a great thing. Mm-hmm. That, that, that can be a, a sign of it, it, what I think it's called like ABO mistyping. Yeah. Something like that. Like the yeah. body's just like, oh, yeah, don't, like, don't, like, don't that's, like this. ABO mistyping is when, yeah. the, when, you, um, when you get the wrong type of blood. Yeah. That's when the <laughs> this, immune system reacts negatively to, yeah. to something entering the body. Mm-hmm. So th- and this is, this is probably what happened here. Yeah. So, and it probably not a full-on rejection, because he did recover. Like, he's fine. He didn't die from it. He didn't become worse. But the, the, the signs yeah. that he writes about as sort of, like, miraculous recovery, some of that is actually a sign that it's not working perfectly. Some, like, we, there are still problems here. I don't, I don't know what sheep's blood is like, but surely it must have antigens that our body does not recognize so probably but there's a reason for why they wanted to why why he wanted to use animal blood and not human blood Mm -hmm. uh because it was sort of assumed sort of like i said sort of everyone knows this of course that human blood would be worse it would be tainted it would be sort of like uh it would suffer from impurities to to vice but animals are like free from vice. They are innocent <laughs> creatures of God's love, and therefore animals are not alcoholics. Blood, yeah, they're not sinful. Yeah. But anyway, Doctor Denis figured, hey, this works. No one has ever tried this before, but it's the 17th century, and I have absolute medical power. Uh, so he starts experimenting more using sheep's blood with a laborer who needed blood as well, uh, and he was also fine. The laborer recovered perfectly. Uh, in fact, the 45-year-old laborer felt that he was stronger than ever before, including before the transfusion. Sheep's blood, apparently, 
I don't, I don't know. I, okay, but I also don't want to end the section on this note because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know much about like the these these cases, mm-hmm. but I I don't think that we should end on like yeah, <laughs> sheep's blood is a great option yeah. if you want to perform a blood transfusion on a person. Don't do that. Look <laughs> at all of these people who like felt much better b- than before. Mm-hmm. Again, I I think that they recovered despite it, not because of it. <laughs> There's maybe a chance here, and um. The sources also claim that I read for this. They they do say that like a big reason for why they probably recovered or like why they didn't have like significant side effects mm-hmm. is because there was a very small amount of blood mm. transfused mm-hmm. uh, overall, but also like in any given time because like this happened in like sessions mm-hmm. instead of just one go. So like like a little bit of up up the top, which probably let the body like time to adapt for some like lack of a better tw- word, but like. Still not great. And as you say, probably, like, there's an element of, like, despite it rather than anything else. However, after these transfusions, not much happens for a while. Doctors begin to refine the technique and more transfusions are done with blood from uh, dogs and sheep. But they can't transfuse a lot of blood at any given time, which makes this more of a fad than, like, as an established medical practice. Many of the methods were flawed, Patients would sometimes suffer side effects, and blood would often begin clotting due to improper handling, which led to blood transfusions actually being banned practice in many places, except in extreme circumstances. Uh, It wasn't until the mid-19th century when a Dr. James Blundell rekindled interest and placed it within a proper scientific and medical context. He was an obstetrician who was horrified that he didn't have any way to treat hemorrhage during childbirths, a common cause of death during childbirth at the time. And he began experimenting with animal blood as well, but quickly realized that it had very sporadic results. Doctors would often mix blood of various animals because of the reason that any animal blood is basically the same as any other animal blood, and it was assumed that animal blood was superior, like I mentioned. Dr. Blundell also invented an early version of a syringe, arguing that human blood was only good for transfusion if it had only been outside the body for only a few seconds. It, it, the second it leaves the body, he argued, it it goes bad quick. And he, like, it, like there had been experiments up to this point with, like, human-to-human transfusion, but they had not been successful. But many of them had operated the same way that blood transfusion between animals had worked, where they just keep it in, like, a sack for a while, and then inject it back in. At which point it's, like, more impurities, air bubbles, clotting, like, it's, it's not great. So Dr. Blundell uses, like, his new methods and tools... And what followed were a series of transfusions between humans, most of which were failures. Some patients suffered from dark urine, cramp, fever, backaches, and so on, mostly likely as a result of what we now understand as ABO incompatibility, which we're going to dive into a bit more later. I'm I'm looking at this dark urine thing, and I, I honestly I don't really know a lot about ABO incompatibility or like what symptoms this causes. But I wonder if the dark urine would be caused by the breakdown of red blood cells because hemoglobin is made mm-hmm. up of iron, um, or it has like iron elements, mm-hmm. and iron appears dark when it's broken down. Yeah. So I wonder if that's what uh, they found in the in the urine, or that's why it was dark. It's possible. Doctor Blundell's notes are very sort of like. I don't know. <laughs> like they're not, they're not feeling great. They did ten of these transfusions between humans. He did. He liked to sort of like try to figure out how to do it properly. Four of them were successes, 
Uh, and two of them were actually done in dead people. So. Oh God. So you know that that was also doomed to be a failure anyway. Wait, did he did he transfuse blood? between dead people or did he take blood from a dead person and put it in an alive person uh from an alive person into a dead person and vice versa how are you gonna know if the transfusion was successful in a dead person <laughs> well i, I think like maybe good job you experiment just... was more aimed towards like testing both the tool mm-hmm. and seeing like how the blood would act and maybe even seeing if like blood from a dead person who is like recently dead by the way yeah still warm is still like good enough to sort of transfuse uh you know, he's, he's doing some experiments. And remember, he's doing this to, like, he wants to save lives. I mean, sure, you want to, you have to, like, try things out and not be afraid to be wrong. But the thought of getting blood from a dead person is giving me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> heebie-jeebies. Uh, Dr. Blundell helped standardize blood transfusions in, in these experiments and also figured out a device where you could extract blood from a donor and immediately transfuse it into a patient. Um, eventually introducing a sort of filter to get rid of air bubbles and a rudimentary pump to get the blood flowing. So before this, transfusions are done by like you extract blood from one person and then you take like you disconnect and then you add to another person. This method is like the first like reliable like tool to like have one person like stand over another person like with their arm outstretched, blood connected from one vein in one person into the vein of another person. And this apparently helped significantly because clotting was much, much reduced uh, as well as like other types of issues. But there were still a lot of side effects. And the side effects here came from people thinking that air bubbles had entered the bloodstream. Air bubbles, they knew that was kind of bad and they didn't want that injecting into the bloodstream. Kind of bad. There's, no blood, there's no air bubbles in there. So... <laughs> Physicians actually started developing like more and more advanced filters to put in these devices that they that they use, which had a sort of like like one step forward, one step back, because they're figuring out that like it can't be exposed to air. Good. But the filters also filter out like many of the proteins and like the thing that like makes blood blood or like mm-hmm. useful. Mm-hmm. Um, which does reduce side effects. It did, ha- it did have that effect. Great job. But it also reduces sort of like the point of injecting the benefits, blood in the first yeah. place. So. Yeah, I mean, if it, if it filters out like red blood cells or platelets, you need that stuff. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> that's, not, that's not good. Like, congratulations. You just got a transfusion of straight plasma. <laughs> so because side effects were so extremely common and patients would occasionally respond poorly or even die from a bad transfusion... This led doctors to try to find blood substitutes, something that could help support the body as if it was blood, but with no side effects. This led to milk being a very popular alternative, especially in the US, where they'd use the milk from goats, cows, and humans. In 1878, the New York medical record uh, loved milk as a blood substitute so much that they predicted that blood transfusions would be a thing of the past with the successes of milk transfusions. Two years later, however, it was already abandoned because of like a lot of other side effects because milk isn't supposed to go in the bloodstream. I don't even want to think about what would happen if you transfused the milk into Just somebody's straight milk. They used yeah. to and they and it, like milk was not the very it was not the only thing that they would put mm. uh, in people. It was the most as a, as a blood substitute. Yeah. They would do beer. They would do wine. You haven't mm-hmm. mentioned this, but but wine wine and opium that was another thing mm-hmm. that they that they used uh, as a transfusion. Like some people died in horrible ways. <laughs> yeah. For for uh, medical knowledge to to move forward. 
And that's a, a sad fact yeah. about medical history. <laughs> a lot of these substitutes uh, were also like, they tried them for like a little bit. And the second, like it didn't really work, like they did stop. To be fair to them, but they, they, they tried a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. The reason why milk became so popular was because for, like they thought it worked for a while. The New York Medical Journal, they were like, yeah, milk is perfect. Has no side effects. But then of course it did. I need um, to look into this. I'm really curious to see like what, what actually happens. Yeah. I wonder why the U.S. was so popular with milk, too. Why is, why is the U.S. obsessed with milk? Had a lot of cattle. <laughs> Everywhere has a lot of cattle. When did cattle production begin being so popular in the United States? In the United States? Yeah. Because, I mean, now they're, oh, they, they have a lot of cows. They do have a lot of ca cows. For a second, I thought you were going to ask when cattle production became a popular thing like in the world. <laughs> and I was going to answer some like stupid thing like... 4,000 years before Christ, or something stupid. In 1900, Carl Landsteiner found that if he mixed blood from two different people, the red blood cells would agglutinate, meaning that they would clump together. This was actually the first time that evidence was produced that variations in human blood existed. Previously, it was thought that all humans have similar blood. As a result, he successfully identified the three blood groups A, B, and O, which he initially labeled C. He proposed that group A agglutinates with group B, but not with its own type, and that group C agglutinates with both A and B. For this discovery, Landsteiner was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1930, and in his winning paper he clarified that the agglutination is due to the A and B antigens on the surface of blood cells, as well as the presence of antibodies, anti-A and anti-B. Well deserved. Like, because, you know, it's a big, like, big discovery. If you figure it out, then you can do blood transfusions like mm -hmm. properly with basically no side effects. Mm -hmm. The following year, his students Storley and Von De Castello discovered the fourth blood type, which we now call AB, which contains both A and B antigens. I wonder why blood type C got renamed to O. I don't know. I always think of it as like zero, like zero antigens. Yeah. So maybe something maybe. to do with that. The O is actually just like the shape of the blood cells with like n nothing on its surface, just a bold cell. That reminds me of a, of, a, of like a biology textbook that I had in high school that that showed blood types where they just like had the the letter on on the blood cell. No, the blood cell was the shape of the letter. What? Yeah, yeah. So like when they would demonstrate blood types, they would show like a like a capillary system or like a blood vein and just right? A's like in, flowing like, through it. Yeah, there's A's. <laughs> That's stupid. Like and B. It was really stupid. <laughs> but back to Landsteiner and uh, blood typing. Actually, because of his findings, uh, this led to the first successful blood transfusion that was performed by Ruben Ottenberg at Mount Sinai Hospital in 1907. Nice. And I think that this is something, um, you know, like there have been like successful blood transfusions before, mm. but I think that this time, because they knew about blood typing, they actually knew what they were doing. Yeah. Um, you know, they actually used cross typing to find mm. the blood that was appropriate for the patient. They didn't just take like blood from a random person, like you know, put it in somebody else and like hope for the best. Yeah. This um, this reminds me of something that I that I that I'm going to mentally put down in, in a little bit. But that's mm -hmm. a good point. Mm -hmm. The RH factor was also discovered by Landsteiner and his colleague Weiner in nineteen forty. And I love that their names kind of rhyme. I think that's kind of funny. The Steiner Weiner guy. Landsteiner and Weiner. That's like that's the 
that's a show on Netflix for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Of two like two scruffy roommates discover yeah. blood together. Two and scruffy each other's bodies. Two scruffy roommates in New York. <laughs> like one of them is a, how I met your blood type. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they observed that an injection of blood from a rhesus monkey into rabbits caused an antigenic reaction in the serum component of rabbit blood. And then when blood from humans was tested with the rabbit serum, the red blood cells of 85% of the humans uh, that were tested clumped together. The red blood cells of the 85% contained the same factor present in rhesus monkey blood. Such blood was typed RH positive. And then the blood of the remaining 15% lacked the factor and was typed RH negative. And RH then comes from rhesus, for rhesus monkey. Oh. Is that still like a modern day measurement? Yeah, like RH. the RH factor. <laughs> the rhesus factor. So we have the science for how to do a proper blood transfusion without like people shitting themselves and dying. We have the technology. We have the technology. Um, but there's an interesting story about like how we came to like establish the framework around modern day blood transfusions uh because now you, like the, the idea of a blood bank is kind of like if you try to explain a blood bank to like a medieval peasant he would spit in your face and call you satan <laughs> um it's a big broom filled with filled blood. blood people go in and they give their blood and, and they get a cookie and other people come and take it they take the blood drink the blood so modern day like blood transfusion infrastructure happened because of surgical advances and, of course, war. Mm -hmm. As anesthetics are invented and more invasive surgery becomes more available, blood becomes a valuable resource because blood has a short shelf life, blood types make it so you can't use just any old blood, and you go through quite a lot of blood (laughs) when you're doing surgery. (laughs) And what's a major cause for surgery? That's right, getting blown to smithereens somewhere in France. So, while proper blood transfusions became common after they figured out how to do them properly, without major side effects, thanks to our guy Landsteiner, this happened because of a war in a sort of transitionary period of almost knowing about like proper blood transfusions and having a war, namely the Franco-Prussian War. I'm not going to dive too deep into it, but France and Germany were at it, as they are. And doctors were clamoring for blood transfusions, but this is before we know about blood types. Unfortunately, however, it doesn't seem like proper tools were mainstream just yet for this to happen, with doctors sort of making it up as they went. Which is fair, war is chaos and worse than hell itself, so, like, yeah. But, like, doctors would take, like, rudimentally, like, rubber tubes to sort of, like, transfuse blood, um... Like making syringes and I like mean, tubes that are anything. You gotta do what you gotta do. And just taking it from like a random soldier yeah. <laughs> to another random soldier. Yeah. It's not great. Not great. But after this war, a Swiss doctor by the name of Dr. Joseph Roussel argued heavily in favor of an arm-to-arm device and for the practice of using human blood a bit more liberally, saying that in some cases it's better to try and fail than not to try at all. This is some extreme cases he's talking about too, like literally like legs being blown off and like someone's going to, someone die. will yeah, die. Yeah, someone will die if they don't get blood like yeah, right exactly. now. And he also, like he was in the sort of like, <laughs> in the phase where like people see all the side effects of using human, human blood. So some people are still like, maybe we should just use dog blood. <laughs> and he, uh, he argued of using human, <laughs> of using human blood, but not for the reason that you may think of like, well, it's human blood. We need human, we're humans, we need human blood. Um... 
again, like right before we discover blood types, right? So he doesn't know about this. He argues that hu- it's easier to get a human <laughs> than, than it is to get, get an animal. Yeah, I mean, in times of war, like, yeah, like or, there's soldiers all around you. You That's... could whistle for a dog and the dog might not be there. Yeah. And if you, if you whistle for a cow, the cow might not know how to operate some stairs. That's literally what he said. Cow's blood won't work because you can't get a cow in the, in the room. King. Um, but of course, with ABO typing and testing and having soldiers be tested before they go to war, suddenly blood transfusions became significantly less problematic. But even when we did find out about ABO typing, initially, they didn't type both the donor and the recipient. They only tested the donor. Uh, <laughs> thinking that like... Like, do you have, like, the good types or do you have the bad type? And they had to, like, do this for a little while, but while a lot of doctors realized, like, okay, we'd have to test both of them. So what's a good... What's knew that you had to test both sides, right? He knew this. Hold on. What's a good type and what's a bad type? Uh, C is a good type. Oh, okay. Donates. Oh, and everything else they would just discard. So they would only take... They would only take donations from, like, O O people. So, (laughs) almost... Because, uh, like, Landsteiner knew that you didn't need to do this. Landsteiner knew that you could, as long as you tested both people, you could do this. Like, he was mm-hmm. smart enough to do that. But, like, doctors and nurses throughout, like, the world, they heard about, uh, like, blood types. And they were like, oh, well, one of the O types gives blood freely. No problem. So let's just use that. And then they never tested. And then they realized that it wouldn't work always because not all O blood types are universal donators, are they? Like, O negative is a universal recipient, I believe. Yes, O negative is a universal donator, but O positive is not. I don't know blah, 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 that, so I'm glad you're here. <laughs> um, but like be- because of this, like they didn't test everywhere, so it took like a year or two for doctors to really figure out that like we need to test both of them, and we need to use clean tools. It's not air bubbles that are the problem. And the, the moment they figured that out, that like took a year or two. But after that, um, blood transfusion became standard practice. And uh, this man, Dr. Russell. He became instrumental in sort of like starting up like the very first blood banks uh, in, in Switzerland and eventually like in Europe because as, as people started to see their value. So as Mia has mentioned before, people have attempted to use a variety of fluids as blood replacements, including beer, urine, which I don't think you mentioned, but urine, urine was one of them. Gross. It's... It's a body uh, fluid. It, why? It, why the heck not? <laughs> urine just like filtered blood when you think about it. But it yes, but it, it, it has... contains waste and it doesn't have the blood cells that make blood what blood is. No, but so, I mean, no, it's it is, not. It's filtered blood. Okay, it? well, poop is filtered food. So, can you use that as a food replacement? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying you can. Yeah, but I'm just saying it's like the same thing. <laughs> it's like a similar like yeah, right. parallel. So, as Mia has mentioned before, people have attempted to use a variety of fluids as blood replacements, including beer, urine, which you haven't mentioned, but that was one of them, milk, wine mixed with opium, and non-human animal blood. Love non-human animal blood. Wait, what's a non-human, non-animal blood? If it's just non-human blood. I said non-human animal blood. No, no, that's what I mean. But like, that's a a wonderful phrasing. And I, I think I saw it also when researching, but like, what's the alternative? Human animal blood? Yeah. Because humans are animals. I so guess. if you're saying, like, if you're saying animal blood, that technically includes humans. Oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Use them, people. 
Obviously, those are not appropriate blood replacements, so a lot of research has been done since to come up with a proper substitute. Uh, the blood substitutes would help address the blood donation shortage, as well as the concerns of groups who have religious reasons for refusing transfused blood, such as Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. They could also be used for newborn babies whose immune systems are not fully developed and who are therefore very sensitive to bacteria and viruses that are sometimes present in donated blood, and for whom typically you have to take special precautions. Mm. There's a... There's like a guy in the U.S. that has like a special type of blood. I don't know what his deal is with his blood, but it, it allows him to give his blood to like newborns that has like a very specific type of cancer. That's interesting. And like both because of newborns and because they have this type of cancer, like if they just like get regular sort of like blood flushings, basically, they, they're fine. They can recover. They can be live full, happy lives, but they need a very specific type of blood. And... This, like, one guy in the U.S., he has, like, a specific gen genetic marker or whatever that makes his blood just slightly different. So he himself, he goes to, like, donate blood, like, twice twice a month, and he donates a lot. Uh, and he has saved, like, dozens of lives. I'll yeah, okay, so maybe he, he has some sort of, like, immune factor that helps yeah. these kids recover. Yeah. yeah, I don't know anything about that, but that's that's an interesting story. Yeah. Um, Lastly, these blood replacements could be used as a replacement for blood type O negative, which is always in short supply because everybody wants it, because um, it's used for O negative people, for pregnant people, and for people who oh. can't have their blood type tested in emergency situations. Oh, um, yeah. You know, because you, 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 you don't know like what the baby's blood type will be, so you need to give them O negative. Yeah, um, or... Yeah, or, yeah, or yeah, like if you're in an accident, you can't talk. Yeah, yeah, you're I, in, I, you know, you get hit by a car, like they're not yeah. going to like blood type you. <laughs> they need to give you blood now. I have always wondered how doctors did that situation. Of course, they just used the universal donor blood. That makes so much sense. Yeah. If you have universal donor blood, please donate. <laughs> Um, however, unfortunately, this far, there are no widely available oxygen-carrying blood substitutes. There are a few types of non-blood volume expanders used in cases where volume restoration is required, but that's not really blood. That's like just a, a fluid that yeah. you can, you know, you can pump somebody full of. Um, if the tank is low, yeah, yeah, they, but they can fill up the tank, but they need something to... Yeah, it's not going to make the car go, yeah. Yeah. A few oxygen therapeutics are, however, currently being tested in clinical trials in the United States and Europe, and Hemopure is available in South Africa. So I want to talk about the different types of oxygen-carrying blood substitutes, and these can be divided into three categories, those based on perfluorocarbon, recombinant hemoglobin, and stem cells. And we haven't really talked about this, but what's the purpose of blood? What do you think? What is the purpose of blood? To deliver nutrients to the cells and to collect waste. Yeah. Um, yeah. So primarily it's like main, its main goal, its main purpose is to pick up oxygen in the lungs and then carry it to the heart and the rest of the body, mm. where it also picks up and removes carbon dioxide. So and, and of course, um, also transports nutrients from the digestive system and removes toxins and waste and transports uh, pathogen fighting cells to areas where they are needed so it has a lot of functions but its main well i guess you can't really like assign it priority um but oxygen uh carrying is like a major major part of it yeah it is composed of plasma which is like the solvent for the main types of blood cells um the blood water basically the blood water yeah <laughs> 
and the blood cells, the, the main types of blood cells are red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. The red blood cells are the cells responsible for picking up and releasing oxygen, and they are the ones with the iron-rich hemoglobin molecule, and they also constitute 90% of blood cells. White blood cells are the family of immune cells, which fight pathogens, and finally, platelets help with the formation of clots. Primarily, blood substitute research focuses on finding an oxygen-carrying substitute. Makes sense. So, the first class of blood substitutes are perfluorocarbons. These blood products have the advantage of being biologically inert, so this means that they don't like create an immune reaction in the mm. body, and of being able to dissolve and transport high concentrations of oxygen. They are relatively inexpensive to produce and can be made devoid of biological materials, which makes them safer than hemoglobin and stem cell-based products, because it eliminates the possibility of contamination with an infectious agent. So this would make it very useful in the case of babies. You know, you can give them this and not worry that it's going to yeah. have some weird bacteria or virus in it. Yeah. Babies are so fragile. They are. Yeah. Very easy to kill. There are, however, two main challenges in using PFCs. Um, and the first is that they are not water-soluble, which means that they have to be combined with emulsifiers. So you, ha you have to like, combine them with um, like soaps to like, uh, break them up in small molecules oh. so they can like, be transported for the, for the body. The second is that their oxygen-carrying ability is lower than hemoglobin-based products, so significantly more PFC must be used. The FDA did actually approve one PFC-based product called Fluosol in 1989, but the product was later discontinued due to the side effects combined with its limited success. Mm. Another type of blood substitute is hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier blood substitutes. It's a, it's a, it's a long name. Um, they're called HBOC blood substitutes. These are manufactured from red blood cells from expired human blood, cow uh. blood, Cow blood, hemoglobin-producing, genetically modified bacteria, or human placentas. So the way this works is that the hemoglobins are collected and modified to create a sturdy structure and to function without the protective shell of red blood cells. So this is like, this is like the guts of the red blood cell without the shell. Because, mm. um, you know, the red blood cells, for them to carry oxygen, they just need the... The, the hemoglobin. Yeah. That's what actually picks up the oxygen. Uh, so you don't technically need the shell. Yeah. And to do so, the hemoglobin molecules are polymerized, meaning that two or three hemoglobins are covalently bound together to form a larger mega hemoglobin. Mega hemoglobin. <laughs> Giga Transformers. Hemoglobin. Giga hemoglobin. Giga hemoglobin. Giga chaglobin. Mm -hmm. This, I, I love this. I'm I'm literally imagining like mega transformers like just Autobots transform and they transform like all of them combined into yeah. one big mega hemoglobin. Yeah, yeah. Wait, is it called what was it called? Mega hemoglobin. Well, no, I called it that. It's just called like a oh <laughs> like a polymerized hemoglobin or something. Fucking scientists! I want I wanted to be named mega hemoglobin. No, I, I would name it mega hemoglobin, but it has a, a more scientific Science, name. Science. <clears throat> So this type of substitute is advantageous because it relies on hemoglobin's natural function, which is to covalently bind oxygen and transport it throughout tissues. So you don't have to come up with anything fancy, like you just make the mega hemoglobin, release it in the blood, and it, it does its thing. 
Cell-free hemoglobin can therefore potentially be used as a blood substitute. Because it isn't contained inside red blood cells, this eliminates the need for blood typing because the antigens are actually on the surface of the red mm. blood cells. So if you take away the shell, you don't have to worry about none of that. Anyway. You, you just pump it in a person and like there's no antigens. Nothing to worry. Huh. However, unfortunately, cell-free hemoglobin is toxic to surrounding tissues and that it breaks down into O2, uh, I think this is O2 negative, like the, the anion of O2, heme and globin-based radicals. So it, it kills you. No, well, it doesn't kill you, but the, it's like the, for you. when it breaks, break, breaks down, the, the waste products are like, yeah, they're toxic. So mm. then you have to worry about like flushing it's them out in problem, some way. Yeah. yeah, it has a new problem. Great. Additionally, hemoglobin is dependent on the presence of another compound that is normally found in red blood cells uh, that is called 2-free diphosphoglycerate or 2-free DPG. In the absence of 2-free... That sounds like a psychedelic drug. <laughs> in the absence of 2-free DPG, cell-free hemoglobin is a very inefficient oxygen transporter. Um, so therefore, due to its toxicity and low efficiency, the development of cell-free hemoglobin products has been challenging. Mm. Not so good. <laughs> Not good. Um, we should just go back to milk. But there are other ways to construct red blood cells. For example, by differentiation of stem cells derived from bone marrow, cord blood, as well as embryonic stem cells and pluripotent induced stem cells. I fucking love stem cells. I love it. You can make them into anything. <laughs> Um, these is that, isn't that isn't that the thing that like people think Planned Parenthood is like harvesting from aborted fetuses? Yeah, but they do. They do. I don't think. Maybe I, not I mean, it's not, it's not Planned Parenthood. No, it's not Planned Parenthood. <laughs> but you can. You, that that's where the embryonic stem cells come from. You get them from embryos. There's a lot of ethical problems involved, but there's <laughs> You're so the, good. there's oh uh, the embryonic <laughs> stem cells collected from embryos are amazing. <laughs> We're like. Planned Parenthood doesn't like forcibly but harvest I <laughs> embryos to for their medical factories, but they should. <laughs> but they should. That's but it's it, there's a lot of there's a lot of ethical uh, you know issues with that. So. Yeah, but doesn't like this is unrelated. But like during like an early abortion when this is actually possible, isn't this like I'm fairly sure that like in most state in states where it's legal, at least in the U.S. and like in other places, you can sign like a medical release thing. Where, like, what do you want to do with the cells? Like, do, do you want to, like... Hmm. like Donate them to science? It? Do you want it to have, like, to trash? Do you want yeah. to, like... Yeah. I don't else? know. I don't know anything about that. But um, yeah. I know that in Sweden, at least, it's very, very hard to to get. So... Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah, valuable like, good in yeah. the biomedical <laughs> industry. So red blood cells that have been differentiated from stem cells are especially fitting for people who require chronic blood transfusions, as well as patients with rare blood groups or autoantibodies, but is unfortunately quite labor-intensive and expensive. By the way, this process is called blood farming. <laughs> oh, which, also a word that you, if you told a medieval peasant, they would... And it's, like, and it's farming, it's it's farming with a pH, so it's like pharma, like pharmaceutical, oh, but also like farming, like... Boo. Yeah, I know, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty dystopic, though. <laughs> good. That's a Ooh. good pun. Some, someone it's a good pun. It's a good pun. It's a good pun. It's a good pun. Farming. Uh, pretty dystopic, but it's a good pun. <laughs> Another futuristic blood substitute involves dendrimers or dendritic polymers, which are nanometer-sized, water-soluble, star-shaped plastic molecules. So they're making plastic blood. 
<laughs> the dystopia is here. The microplastics. Microplastics. They're already inside of us yeah. all. I I have to say, like I don't I don't know anything about like inorganic chemistry, inorganic engineering. Mm-hmm. But so I, I can't really like tell you a lot about these things. I also like tried to find some information about these uh, this plastic blood, and I can't really find much. So I think mm-hmm. it's a very new thing. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you know the only people who know about it is like four people working on yeah, I mean, shit. Yes, like, I mean you would you should be able to like find papers about it if it's. Yeah. But you know it's um maybe it's a very new thing. Maybe. So, out of all of these that I talked about. Getting red blood cells from stem cells is probably like the best, the best case scenario because they, you know, they are you. You get you get red blood cells. You get exactly red blood cells, which is what the body likes. It's what the body needs. It's what the, the body's made to like take in. Um, but it's very expensive and it's very labor intensive. So it's gonna be some time until we see that actually happen for like the masses. <laughs> the this the at, at, at the time, this is something that you get like as a very expensive like treatment in LA um and you only have yeah Jeff Bezos has it but we're not gonna get it Mm. for like another like 500 years probably (laughs) god this is awful so overall uh the development of an effective blood substitute is still in its early stages and as we like to say in science more research is needed that's always the freaking case (laughs) Every paper always ends with more research and more studies are needed. You gotta keep Although, that scientific curiosity alive, baby. Well, I mean, I, I also ended all my history essays with the exact same thing. Yeah. More, more studies are needed. <laughs> I More studies are needed on this topic because I didn't want to. It's not me, though. <laughs> not me, though. I finished my essay. <laughs> 15, pa- 15 page limit. Uh, like, respect to you, but I'm different. <laughs> respect to you, but I did my assignment, so... I'm done. <laughs> Bye. A study completed. Research grant cashed in. <laughs> All right. This was our episode on blood and blood transfusions. That wonderful tomato juice that exists inside of us. Mm-hmm. I um, learned a lot of stuff. Yeah. Too. I feel... Too, can I Can I be honest? I feel like... I don't know if this is just like a, 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 like a post-recording anxiety i'm also tired but i feel Mm. like we missed a lot of stuff i feel like there's a lot more to be said about blood transfusion maybe i'll be honest though like when i did my research on sort of like blood transfusions like specifically blood transfusions right not just blood generally like generously no conservatively 95 percent of everything had to do with like specific tools that people used Mm. rather than a sort of like like interesting sort of like discoveries around like the nature of blood or like how Mm -hmm. to deal with blood it's, it was very much a sort of thing like they found out that blood circulates in the body 400 years past. We can dog blood another <laughs> 20 years past. Human blood. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, like every page, because I found a wonderful stu- like, uh, document of like 25 pages source, wonderful document mm-hmm. from all of the beginning of like blood time to now. Almost all of it had to be like, uh, they started out using quills as a sort of syringe and also tube. Uh, and then they evolved to using a sort of leather strapped with uh, mm-hmm. also a quill with an animal bladder pump. And then they replaced the animal <laughs> bladder pump with a leather pump from mm-hmm. a cow. But then they found out that goat leather actually works better <laughs> repelling blood. Like, there's just like so much detail about shit that yeah. doesn't matter. And I'm like, stop. But that's... <laughs> Enough. They rick it. Talk to me about like... <laughs> figuring out why you wanted milk yeah and yeah, the, yeah. the entire thing but that's what milk i was mean. just like 
In America, they have milk. Yeah, but that's it, what it I mean. Work. But that's what I mean because I feel like we just like dropped that. So, like they used urine, they used milk. <laughs> what did those people? What happened to those Why people? Did Why did they milk? choose milk? Like there, I feel like there are so many questions that are kind of like left unanswered. Mm-hmm. And I'm, dear listeners, I'm so sorry, but it, so I couldn't find, I couldn't find anything about it. And a lot of, I just feel, yeah. I just feel like you know, some some episodes are just oh so good. Like the narrative is so crisp and juicy, and you just like you get all your all your shit. On, in yeah. order all your ducks in a row all your questions are answered you end it's so satisfactory like i don't know if i'm really satisfied no it was a good episode but i just i feel like something i feel like we can come back here i feel like we can come back blood isn't uh, let's say this as a starter mm-hmm. like uh, like we, we've mm-hmm. covered the basics of blood mm-hmm. and we can come back to build on this in the, future. the main course is yet to come <laughs> The main course of autoimmune diseases or yeah. some shit. I don't know. Maybe we can do another episode on like the discovery of immunity or something. Something. Because like I feel like fun. there's a lot of overlap between blood and the immune system. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I don't feel like it. There is. <laughs> so we can, you know, we can, we can come back to it. Yes. And pick up anything we've we've missed. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, this has been an episode on the history of blood and blood transfusions. We really sincerely warmly hope that you enjoyed it mm-hmm. um if you like this episode and if you like our work as podcasters i highly encourage you to support us on patreon it really helps us keep the show going and also um helps pay for snacks hell yeah i mean hell yeah it helps pay for for food you know at this mm-hmm. point i i would say we're past the point of snacks when at this point you're paying for our meals <laughs> And we cannot be more grateful. <laughs> You're paying for... You're paying for, for groceries. For like, hell yeah. Our patrons are paying for our groceries. That's nice as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, for some reason, can't or don't want to support us, uh, just listening is good. Sharing, good. rating us. It helps a lot. Yeah, we don't pay to, uh, to like advertise. advertise the podcast. Yeah. So word of mouth is all we got. So please share the podcast. And if you want to get more content out of, out of us... If you if you don't like if you don't feel like this is enough, you can go to twitch.tv slash leastfest to see us play video games together. Yeah. Uh, we we don't talk about medical history there, but we are to and we we talk stuff. We talk shit. We talk shit. It's fun. All right. This has been Leechfest, and we will see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>